invested in ones from earlier days? Yes, but the number is diminishing as I decide some of these funds aren't as good as I thought they were, or their returns have declined. When you were actively searching for new hedge funds to invest in, with the number of hedge funds having grown so much, how did you decide which ones to look at? I screened out funds that had an annualized standard deviation greater than 15%, or had an annualized return less than 12%, or had a bad year. Were there any managers you met who were good at the markets through an intuitive sense rather than any explicit analytics? I spent a day with Bruce Kovner many years ago, and I thought he had a good qualitative grasp of all kinds of interconnections in the markets. If you were a person who was able to think like Bruce Kovner, you could follow that path and be successful. I co-invested with Bruce on one of his ideas. Bruce bought an oil tanker and allowed a number of people he knew to invest alongside with him. I think I own 20 feet of this tanker. It was called the Empress de Mers, and at the time it was the largest oil tanker in the world. The tanker could be bought for a little above scrap value because there was a surplus of tankers at that time, and the older tankers were in mothballs. I think this tanker had a scrap value of about four million, and Bruce bought it for six million. We just sat on it. It was sort of like an option on the oil market. When activity picked up in the oil market, there was a huge demand for tankers, so our tanker got used over and over and made a lot of money. It was in service until only a few years ago when it became so obsolescent that it was sold off for scrap. How did you meet Warren Buffett? When I started managing accounts trading warrants when I was at UCI, I got a reputation around school. One of the people who heard about me was Ralph Gerard, who was dean of the graduate school. He happened to be an investor with Buffett Partners Limited, which was being closed down because Buffett felt that stocks were at crazy heights in 1968, and he didn't feel there was much more he could do. Gerard needed to find an alternative investment to place the money that he was getting back from Buffett. He introduced me to Buffett, and we all played bridge at Gerard's house a few times. I knew Buffett was a really smart person when I met him in 1968. I remember telling my wife that given his ability to analyze companies, his rate of compounding, and the scalability of the approach, I thought he would be the richest person in the U.S. someday. He was for a period a few decades later, and from time to time thereafter. I lost track of Buffett, and then one day in 1982, I learned that Berkshire Hathaway, the company whose stock he had been distributing in 1968, had been turned into his own private mutual fund. I immediately realized what that meant. So I went out and bought Berkshire Hathaway shares. They had been selling for $12 a share in 1964, and here I was buying them at $985 a share. Do you have thoughts on futures trend following as a strategy? I believe there are versions of it that have a sharp ratio of about 1.0 or more, but that is low enough so that there is still a significant risk of getting shaken out of the strategy. I take it, then, that you believe that there are trends inherent in the markets. Yes. Ten years ago, I wouldn't have believed it. But a few years ago, I spent a fair amount of time looking at the strategy. My conclusion was that it works, but that it was risky enough so that it was hard to stay with it. Did you ever use trend following as a strategy? I did. When did you trade futures? 
We began the research project in 2006 and launched the trading program in late 2007. It was promising, and we were thinking of bringing it up large scale with institutional money. But in early 2010, my wife was diagnosed with brain cancer, and my heart wasn't in it. Life is too short. I didn't want to launch another major activity. So we gradually wound down the program. So the program had worked well while you're using it? Reasonably well. It wasn't as compelling as the Princeton-Newport strategies or statistical arbitrage, but it would have been a good product, and it seemed to be better than most of the other trend-following programs out there that were managing a lot of money. What kind of sharp ratio was your program running? It was a little better than 1.0 annualized. Since you are no longer using the strategy, can you talk about what modifications you made to improve a plain vanilla trend-following approach? Was there something about your program that made it different from other trend-following approaches and that might explain why it did somewhat better? We combined technical and fundamental information. What kind of fundamental information? The fundamental factors we took into account varied with the market sector. In metal and agricultural markets, the spread structure, whether a market is in backwardation or contango, can be important as can the amount in storage relative to storage capacity. In markets like currencies, however, those types of factors are irrelevant. Would it be accurate to describe your approach as combining technical trend-following rules with market-specific fundamental filters that define favorable and unfavorable environments? Yes. Were there other enhancements you made to the standard trend-following approach? We had some risk-reducing approaches built into the system. We tracked a correlation matrix that was used to reduce exposures in correlated markets. If two markets were highly correlated and the technical system went long one and short the other, that was great. But if it wanted to go long both or short both, we would take a smaller position in each. Since correlations between markets changed so radically over time, even changing sign, how long of a loopback period did you use? We found that 60 days was about best. If you use too short of a window, you get a lot of noise. If you use too long of a window, you get a lot of old information that isn't relevant. What other risk-reducing strategies did you incorporate into the system? We also had a risk management process that worked a bit like the old portfolio insurance strategy. If we lost 5%, we would shrink our positions. If we lost another few percent, we would shrink our positions more. The program would therefore gradually shut itself down as we got deeper in the hole, and then it had to earn its way out. We would wait for a threshold point between a 5% and 10% drawdown before beginning to reduce our positions, and then we would incrementally reduce our position with each additional 1% drawdown. At what drawdown point would your position be reduced to zero? 20%. How far down did you get? Our maximum drawdown was about 14% to 15%, by which point we were trading only about one-third of our normal base position size. How would you get restarted if the drawdown reached 20%? You wouldn't. You'd have to decide ahead of time how much of a drawdown would imply that the system is not as good as you thought it was and therefore shouldn't be traded. In hindsight, do you think reducing your exposure on drawdowns was a good idea? 
It all depends on how confident you are about your edge. If you have a really strong conviction about your edge, then the best thing to do is to sit there and take your lumps. If, however, you believe that there is a reasonable chance that you might not have an edge, then you better have a safety mechanism that constrains your losses on drawdowns. My view on trend following was that I could never be sure that I had an edge, so I wanted a safety mechanism. Whereas for a strategy like convertible arbitrage, I had a high degree of confidence as to the payoff probabilities, so reducing exposure on drawdowns was unnecessary. In a strategy like trend following where you couldn't accurately assess the probabilities, as you could in a strategy such as convertible arbitrage, what percent of the Kelly criterion was your bet size? We didn't use the Kelly criterion at all in trend following because the bet size was such a small fraction of Kelly that it didn't make any difference. I would guess that we were probably using something equivalent to one-tenth or one-twentieth of Kelly. I understand that you looked at Madoff at an early point in his career. Can you tell me about that experience? Back in 1991, one of the major institutional investors in the Princeton Newport Fund asked me to review their allocation process for their pension fund. I spent several days at their offices reviewing their hedge fund managers. One of these managers was remarkable in that he printed positive returns of about 1% to 2% virtually every month. They had been invested with this manager for a few years. I asked them to show me the statements. I looked at the statements and very quickly determined that the manager was a fraud. How did you reach that conclusion? The first step was to look at what the manager said he did. His purported strategy was to buy a stock, buy a put a little below the stock price, and sell a call a little bit above the stock price. The premium he received for the call approximately balanced the premium he paid for the put. Buying the put protected him from losing much in any given month, but it certainly didn't mean that he would win every month. Suppose you have a month with a strong up market. He will do well because he will make the difference between the strike price at the call and the price at which he bought the stock. On the other hand, suppose you have a significant down month. Then he will lose because the puts he bought will get exercised at lower prices than where he bought the stock. Since he was doing the same strategy in all the stocks, he shouldn't be getting much diversification in months where most stocks were up or down. So he should have some very good months, but he should also have some very bad months. But those results were not showing up. His returns were not consistent with the market given the strategy he claimed to employ. So the immediate question I had was, why not? When I looked at the record, I noticed that miraculous trades would be put on periodically that would get rid of the potential losing months and make them winners, and get rid of the big winning months and make them moderate winners. And those miraculous trades were long or short S&P futures positions that just happened to come in the right month and the right amount to smooth everything out. After this initial review, I asked my client, when do you receive your trade confirmation statements? Well, he answered, they come in bundles every few weeks. Who is the accountant? I asked. He is a friend of Madoff, they said. He runs a one-man shop and has been Madoff's accountant since the 1960s. I held my nose and asked, who is in charge of information technology? Oh, his brother, Peter Madoff, they answered. I told him that I wanted to go over and check out the operation. They called up to arrange for my visit, 
Bernie was away in Europe, raising more money as it turned out. His brother Peter said, there is no way I will let him in the front door. I asked them to ask why, but Peter wouldn't give a reason. To me, the whole thing smelled. I told my institutional client that I wanted to take their daily confirmations and monthly statements and analyze them in more detail. Fine, they said, do the analysis and report back to us. I brought boxes of the confirmations and statements back with me to California and went over the information carefully. We looked at the individual trade confirmations and determined that most of the trades could never have been made. We chose to focus on the option trades because the stock trades were too difficult to prove false. Half the option trades were for options that didn't even trade on the transaction date. Zero volume. About a quarter of the rest couldn't have traded at the prices quoted. For the remaining quarter, we couldn't tell if the trades occurred. I took ten of these trades to a high-place brokerage friend and asked him if he could find out who the counterparties were on those trades. He checked and found out that Madoff's organization didn't appear as counterparty on any of the trades. I told my institutional client, He is printing fake trades. He is making it all up. What you should do is get out as soon as you can and as quietly as you can. This is a huge Ponzi scheme that will get bigger and bigger and one day it is going to self-destruct. Did they get out? They did. Did you take it any further? I thought of trying to expose it, but I had already had a belly full of government with Giuliani and Princeton Newport partners. I also had previously found some small frauds and was told by a lawyer friend of mine who spent eight years working for the SEC that it would be a waste of time reporting it. Why is that? Because they didn't care about stuff like that. What are your thoughts on the efficient market hypothesis? Based on our daily success in Princeton Newport Partners, the question wasn't, is the market efficient? But rather the appropriate questions were, how inefficient is the market and how can we exploit the inefficiencies? The claim of market efficiency, which implies that no market edge is possible, is a hollow statement because you can't prove a negative. But you can disprove market efficiency if there are people who have a demonstrable edge. There is a market inefficiency if there is a participant who can generate excess risk-adjusted returns that can be logically explained in a way that is difficult to rebut. Convertible arbitrage is a good example. You can lay out exactly how it works, why it works, and approximately how much return you expect to get. How would you summarize your philosophy of the markets after all these years? I think inefficiencies are there for the finding, but they are fairly hard to find. Do you think it has gotten harder to find inefficiencies, given the increased competition? It has gotten harder for me, but that may only be because I am older and less interested and have more money, which makes me less motivated. Do you have any advice for someone who wanted to pursue the markets as a challenge? The approach that worked for me was the title of a book written much later by my ex-sister-in-law, Do What You Love and the Money Will Follow. Anything else? Try to figure out what your skill set is and apply that to the markets. If you are really good at accounting, you might be good as a value investor. If you are strong in computers and math, you might do best with a quantitative approach. Gambling and investing may not sound like they have much in common but to Thorpe they were quite similar. 
They were both probability-based games for which the problem of finding an edge could be solved analytically, even though such a solution was widely assumed not to exist for either. Thorpe defied the standard preconceptions in both gambling and investing and applied the same type of scientific thinking and mathematical reasoning to each of these endeavors. It is therefore not surprising that the same principles and risk management he employed in gambling are as pertinent to providing trading lessons as those he used in the markets. Beating roulette was once considered a mathematical impossibility. By approaching the problem in a completely different way, focusing on predicting the most likely termination zone for the ball, Thorpe was able to create a giant 44% edge. The broad lesson is that sometimes what seems impossible is entirely possible if approached from a completely different perspective. A similar condition might apply to trading. If one grants that the markets can't be beat with conventional approaches, it by no means implies that unconventional approaches would have the same limitation. Thorpe's insight into how to improve the odds in blackjack betting via via the basic system, that is, correct probabilistic decisions on when to hit, hold, split, or double up, was to vary the bet size. By betting more on high-probability hands than on low-probability hands, Thorpe was able to transform a losing game, even when played with perfect decisions other than bet size, into a game with a significant positive edge. There is an important analogy here that applies to traders. Varying the position size can be as important as the entry methodology. Trading smaller, or not at all, for lower probability trades and larger for higher probability trades can transform a losing strategy into a winning one. Thorpe had to bet something on even low-probability blackjack hands, but the trader can forego lower-probability trades altogether. Although in trading probabilities cannot be accurately assessed, as they can in blackjack, traders can often still differentiate between higher and lower probability opportunities. For the quantitative trader, such an assessment might be based on a statistical analysis of past results for different strategies. As for discretionary traders, many of them have strong differences in confidence level for different trades. If a trader does better on high-confidence trades, then the degree of confidence can serve as proxy for probability of winning. The implication then becomes to trade larger on high-confidence trades and smaller, or not at all, on low-confidence trades. The degree of confidence in a trade is relevant not only in determining the trade size, but also in deciding on the appropriate risk management approach. When Thorpe did arbitrage trades, where the maximum theoretical risk could be approximately estimated, he did not consider reducing exposure if the position went against him. In contrast, when Thorpe employed a trend-following strategy, in which the trades were directional and the edge far more uncertain than the edge in the various arbitrage strategies he had previously used, he made exposure reduction on drawdowns part of the methodology. A lesson that Thorpe learned in gambling was, don't bet more than you are comfortable with. Just take your time until you're ready. He drove his original blackjack backers crazy by starting out betting $1 on the bad hands and a maximum of $10 on the good hands ridiculously small wagers given his edge and the objectives of his backers. Thorpe's perspective on risk and comfort level provides sound advice for traders as well. Emotions are deadly for trading, and the surest way to guarantee that emotions will impact trading decisions is by trading beyond one's comfort level. Many traders mistakenly believe that there is some single solution to defining market behavior. If only they could find that solution, trading would become like operating a money machine.
Many traders are continually searching for this holy grail of trading methods. The reality is that there is no single solution to the markets, and any solutions that do exist are continually changing. Successful traders adapt to changing market conditions. Even when they find patterns or methods that provide a market edge, they will change their approach as dictated by the market. Finding success in the markets is a dynamic rather than static process. Thorpe's approach to statistical arbitrage is a case study in adapting to markets. The initial concept was to balance long positions in stocks that had gone down the most with short positions in stocks that had gone up the most, so that the portfolio net exposure was near zero. When the return-slash-risk of the strategy started to deteriorate, Thorpe switched to a variation of the strategy that added sector neutrality to market neutrality. Then, when even sector-neutral statistical arbitrage started to lose its edge, Thorpe switched to a strategy variation that neutralized the portfolio to the various factors. By the time the third iteration was adapted, the original system version had significantly degraded. By adapting and changing the strategy, Thorpe was able to consistently maintain extremely strong return-slash-risk performance, whereas staying with the original system because it had worked so well at one time would have fared poorly. What is the optimal size for any trade? Theoretically, this question has a precise answer. The Kelly criterion, which it can be mathematically demonstrated, will yield a higher cumulative return over the long run than any other strategy for determining trading size. There is a rub, however. The Kelly criterion assumes that the probability of winning and the ratio of the amount won to the amount lost per wager are precisely known. Although this assumption is typically true for games of chance, in trading, the probability of winning is unknown and, at best, can only be estimated, often with a wide degree of error. If the Kelly criterion is used to determine the trade size, there is a steep penalty for overestimating the probability of winning, or the ratio of the average win to average loss. In fact, the negative impact of overestimating the correct trade size is twice as large as the negative impact of underestimating the correct trade size by the same amount. Therefore, if the precise probabilities of winning are not known, as is usually the case for trading applications, then the bet size should be significantly smaller than the full Kelly amount. Also, even assuming the correct Kelly trade size was precisely known, the resulting equity stream would be far too volatile for most people's comfort level. The high volatility implicit in the Kelly criterion is not merely an aesthetic issue, but has important practical implications as well. The greater the volatility of the equity stream, the greater the chance a trader will abandon the approach on one of the drawdowns. Thorpe recommends that using half Kelly is a better alternative than full Kelly for most people, even if the probability of winning and the average win-average loss ratio can be reasonably estimated. If the estimate for the probability of winning is subject to wide error, then only a very small fraction of Kelly should be risked on any trade. When Thorpe was faced with such a situation, that is, when he traded a trend-following system, he estimates that his trade size was probably less than one-tenth of Kelly, such a small fraction of Kelly that he didn't even use the Kelly criterion to size trades. Where does this all leave us in regards to using the Kelly criterion for trade sizing? It depends. If you believe you can roughly estimate your probability of winning and the average win-average loss ratio, then the Kelly criterion can be useful in defining the appropriate trade size. 
Even in this instance, however, half Kelly will be a better choice than full Kelly for most people. If, however, the probability of winning is subject to wide error, then even half Kelly is probably much too large, and the Kelly criterion would be of limited use. Chapter 7 Jamie Mai Seeking Asymmetry I became aware of Jamie Mai through Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short, which manages the neat feat of creating an entertaining narrative about the complex, esoteric world of mortgage-backed securities, MBS, that lay at the heart of the 2008 financial crisis. Ironically, based on the trades Lewis described, I drew a very different impression about the balance between luck and skill in driving the success of Cornwall Capital, Mai's firm, than Lewis himself did. Lewis's colorful narrative of Cornwall as a hedge fund started in a shed on a shoestring budget. Trading a small brokerage account gave no hint of the firm's institutional context. The reality is a bit duller. Cornwall was originally founded as a family office to diversify the capital of Mai's father, who ran AEA Investors, a prominent, long-standing private equity firm that was recently rated one of the ten most consistent-performing buyout fund managers in the world. Shortly after he started Cornwall, Mai was joined by Charlie Ledley, a former colleague from a private equity firm at which they had both worked. A third key principal, Ben Hockett, joined Cornwall in 2005 as head trader. The three collaborated closely in developing Cornwall's investment program, which combined the bottoms-up fundamental value approach in which Mai and Ledley had been trained with Hockett's capital markets experience and expertise in derivatives and fixed-income trading. Ledley left Cornwall, on good terms, in 2009 to join a large Boston-based hedge fund. Hockett remains at Cornwall and is the firm's chief risk officer and head trader. Cornwall's strategies range from thematic fundamental trades to trades that seek to profit from esoteric market inefficiencies. The one unifying characteristic virtually all of Cornwall's strategies share is that they are structured and implemented as highly asymmetric, positive skew trades, that is, trades in which the upside potential far exceeds the downside risk. One of these trades, a short bet on subprime mortgages, led to Mai, Ledley, and Hockett becoming key characters in Lewis's book. Although this particular trade was unusually profitable, Cornwall ultimately made about 80 times the initial premium they paid out for subprime default protection. It was entirely representative of the types of trades Cornwall seeks out. Beginning in May 2011, Cornwall switched to a new fund structure open to outside investors. Through the years, Mai had encountered several outstanding trade opportunities that could easily accommodate far more capital than his family office could invest. In a few of those instances, he explored the possibility of raising outside investor money to participate in the trade idea, but decided the lag involved was too long. The catalyst that finally convinced Mai to restructure the fund to accommodate investors was born of the frustration of being unable to participate in a rare pure arbitrage opportunity in 2008 because he lacked sufficient assets. Mai decided to open the fund to only a handful of like-minded, sophisticated investors with whom he could be reasonably transparent and share ideas, rather than seeking to maximize assets under management. For the near nine-year period since its inception, Cornwall Capital has realized an average annual compounded net return of 40%, 52% gross. The annualized standard deviation has been relatively high at 32%, 37% gross. 
Cornwall-Sharp ratio of 1.12, 1.23 gross, represents very good performance based on this widely used return-slash-risk measure, but greatly understates the true return-slash-risk performance of the fund. Cornwall is the poster child for the inadequacy of the Sharp ratio if applied to managers with non-normal return distributions. The crux of the problem is that the Sharp ratio uses volatility as the proxy for risk. Because of the asymmetric design of its trades, Cornwall's volatility consists mostly of upside volatility. In other words, Cornwall's volatility is high because they have many instances of very large gains. However, I have yet to meet an investor who finds large gains to be a problem. The risk measure of the Sharp ratio, the standard deviation, will penalize exceptionally large gains. Using a return-slash-risk measure such as the gain-to-pain ratio, which employs a loss-based rather than volatility-based risk measure, the superior quality of Cornwall's performance is readily evident. Cornwall's gain-to-pain ratio is exceptionally high at 4.2, 5.2 based on gross returns. I interviewed Mai in the conference room of Cornwall's office in three sessions spaced over a period of six months. We met after trading hours, with the longest interview conducted over a takeout dinner. Mai was friendly and open in discussing his trading strategies. Note. Listeners unfamiliar with options may find it useful to refer to Appendix B, which provides a short primer on options in order to better understand the trading-related references in this chapter. Did you have any reservations about participating as a subject in Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short? For sure. In fact, we originally had no interest in being profiled. When Michael approached us in 2009, Charlie and I were probably spending half our time on non-investment work, trying to impact financial reform policy. We thought it was incredibly scary that nobody was talking about the fundamental structural flaws and credit derivatives that made the financial crisis so hard to resolve. We were also talking to print and broadcast journalists to assist in their efforts to understand and communicate the forces responsible for the crisis. For example, when Michael first approached us, Charlie had recently provided extensive background information to NPR's Planet Money program. The episode they subsequently produced, called The Giant Pool of Money, was a near-verbatim rendition of the story Charlie and I were telling to anyone who would listen, and at that time, not many people would. So when Lewis came along, we talked to him openly. In his case, we provided a more technical narrative that focused on why subprime mortgage securitizations got so out of hand. When he asked to include us in the book, we never considered it seriously, particularly since he told us that he wanted to focus on my relationship with my father. Pretty far along into the project, Michael came back to ask us again. He said, hey guys, I haven't been able to find any other investors who shorted subprime mezzanine CDOs, and I really need you to participate, so I have a narrative device to walk through the mechanics of CDOs. Understanding the basics about CDOs is central to understanding how the credit crisis happened. We explored the possibility of shielding our identities through pseudonyms or fictionalizations, we couldn't come up with a good alternative, so after a bit of arm-twisting by Michael, we reluctantly agreed. Were you satisfied with the way the book turned out? Yes, I was. It laid bare the role of subprime mortgage securitizations in causing the credit crisis in a way that was accessible to a reader without a background in finance. I think it's had a positive impact on the public dialogue. I wish the narrative had extended to include more about the aftermath, particularly the government policy of forbearance and the inextricable interrelationship between systemic risk and credit derivatives. But I suppose that those extensions were beyond the book's purview. 
How do you feel about the way you and your partners were portrayed? Although, broadly speaking, I am fine with how Lewis portrayed us, his depiction reflected at least a touch of artistic license. I suppose it could have been a lot worse. He nicely captured some of the aspects of our methodology, but I think his portrayal might lead readers to draw inaccurate inferences about our investment approach. Specifically, how did you feel you were portrayed inaccurately? I think a reader can walk away with the feeling that we were just cowboys taking reckless risks, when in fact the opposite is true. Yes, he made you sound like lucky gunslingers. I remember when I read the book, my impression was that your portrayal came across as something along the lines as, never was there a long-shot investment venture less likely to succeed. The sequence of trade sounded like a series of ten-to-one bets that all paid off in a giant profit pyramid. Yet when I read the descriptions of each of the trades, my impression was, that's not luck, that's actually a great asymmetric trade, which makes all the sense in the world. As I read it, you were finding greatly underpriced options or investments with option-like characteristics and taking advantage of the opportunity for a reasonable possibility of very large gains with well-defined limited risk. I don't think that came across in the book. Well, I think it was mostly between the lines. I assume the average reader probably wouldn't have come away with that impression, but the facts were there so you could draw your own conclusions. I'm glad you drew the ones you did. While I can understand how some of your trades could make literally multiples of the investment, I was puzzled by the magnitude of the gains indicated by Lewis. Based on the numbers in the book, it sounded like you multiplied your initial $110,000 stake more than a thousand-fold, which sounds a bit incredulous. It is, though in fairness to Michael, he had one major constraint in telling our story, which was that he had to leave my family out of it. My father has run one of the oldest leverage buyout firms in the United States for over 20 years, and before that he ran the investment bank for Lehman Brothers. Cornwall Capital is a family office he and I formed together in 2002. The whole conceit of three dropouts lacking in direction and operating on a shoestring budget made good copy while preserving my family's privacy, but it didn't accurately reflect the fact that we had capital and a clear idea of how we wanted to evolve our investment approach. We did our first trade in my small Schwab account because we hadn't finalized the structure of the family's commingled investment vehicle. So the $110,000 figure was accurate in a narrow sense, it just was not representative because there was a lot more capital behind it, and we had a clear plan for the extension of the strategy. I noticed that you were a history major in college. That hardly sounds like the background of someone looking to get into trading. Were your career objectives different earlier on? Well, I couldn't tell you what my career ambitions were as an undergraduate, but I didn't necessarily think I was taking the option of a finance career off the table by majoring in history. I'm very lucky to have the father I do. He always encouraged me to follow my own path. He is a great role model. He's one of those rare people who can be wildly successful in his career and remain very down-to-earth. He is the most clear-headed thinker I know, and if I've inherited one trait from him that has helped me as an investor, it's an ability to see things in straightforward, practical terms. You might say we are both good at identifying the obvious. As for my career path, when I decided I was ready to buckle down, my father nudged me toward accounting as a back doorway to get into private equity. It's a better background for private equity than the traditional career paths of investment banking or management consulting. There is truth in the adage that accounting is the language of business. Did you go back to school for an accounting degree? Yes. 
At the time, NYU had a special Masters of Accounting program that was sponsored by the big six accounting firms who wanted to diversify their staff pool to include undergrads with liberal arts degrees. In fact, one of the prerequisites to be hired into the program was that you hadn't taken any prior accounting courses. There was a summer crash course to cover four years of accounting classes, and then you were thrown into the financial audit group as a first-year staff accountant. I was hired by Ernst & Young, LLP, and worked primarily on audits of large investment banks. Did you go into private equity after you finished your degree? Yes, I went to work for Golub Capital, which was then a small private equity firm. Charlie Ledley was its first-ever investment analyst, and I was the second, but has now grown its assets under management from less than $100 million to several billion dollars. What did you learn there that was useful to you later on? I think my experiences in private equity provided me with a solid foundation in fundamental value analysis. The due diligence process on an acquisition candidate requires dissecting the company's data at the most granular level. It's very easy to get lost in the weeds, analyzing narrow issues whose complexity increases the deeper you dig. But you need to drill down because that's often where you find the information that leads to the questions that cause the investment thesis to unravel. A necessary skill in private equity is the ability to kill bad deals quickly, since the resource intensity of an analytical deep dive creates such high opportunity costs. One skill I learned from another former boss and mentor of mine, Will Thorndike at Housatonic Partners, was that finding answers is much easier when you know in advance what the questions are. Understanding what the right questions are can be deceptively difficult, but once you do, the rest is straightforward deductive analysis to determine whether the hypothesis is right. Usually it isn't, in which case you throw it into the waste bin with the 98% of other hypotheses that never amount to anything. How did your private equity experience translate forward when you got involved in the investment side? I was drawn first to special situations as they seemed to be a natural fit for the hypothesis-driven and rigorous analytical approach I'd been taught. My definition of a special situation is one where a price dislocation has occurred, either at a single company or across an industry, because the market has identified a particular idiosyncratic risk and assigned an uncertainty discount to it. It's easy to frame the questions in special situations because the market has already identified the problem and applied the discount. We love classic bull versus bear battlegrounds as they are dynamic, often complex, and involve events that can be probabilistically estimated. Although markets are generally good at estimating the magnitude of a contingent liability, they are often poor at evaluating outcomes probabilistically. Examples include litigations, regulatory actions, or other events that create the perception of going concern risk. A specific example? One of our first special situations involved the cigarette maker Altria. In 2003, Altria's market cap had declined close to 50% in response to a spate of rating agency downgrades, reflecting negative developments in a few of the larger class-action litigations underway at the time. Obviously, the contingent liability for the tobacco companies was massive. So it wasn't unreasonable that a few individual cases should have the potential to introduce meaningful uncertainty risk. Each case embedded the potential for nine or even ten-figure settlements, not to mention the risk of setting a precedent favorable to future plaintiffs. It wasn't hard to create a story that ended in insolvency for the tobacco companies. At the same time, we heard a couple of smart investors argue that the ratings agencies had gotten it all wrong. 
In their view, structural realignments were likely to protect the tobacco companies from dismemberment. Specifically, they cited a global settlement with all 50 state attorney generals and the fact that U.S. taxpayers had already gained a controlling economic interest in the tobacco companies, with the majority of revenues from cigarette sales going to various federal, state, and local government agencies. We liked the bullish argument and decided to take a closer look. Commercial litigations tend to throw off lots of publicly available information. We learned everything we could about each of the major cases, winding its way through the courts at the time. We also found lots of smart litigators who were not involved in these cases, but were following them closely. The information they provided enabled us to assign at least rough probabilities to various outcomes. We spent two months gaming out the scenarios from the tobacco litigation and concluded the discount was seriously overdone. As a general observation, markets tend to over-discount the uncertainty related to identified risks. Conversely, markets tend to under-discount risks that have not yet been expressly identified. Whenever the market is pointing at something and saying this is a risk to be concerned about, in my experience, most of the time the risk ends up not being as bad as the market anticipated. How do you estimate what discount the market is building into the price? It was fairly easy in this case, given the obvious correlation between the rating downgrades and the stock price. Although we couldn't be sure that the correlation reflected causality, it seemed likely. As a complementary approach, you could also calculate the breakup value of the company, how much the non-tobacco-related businesses, such as Kraft, were worth on their own. Then by subtracting this value from the stock price, you could back into an estimate of the value the market was assigning to the tobacco business. The difference between this value and the value of the tobacco business absent any litigation uncertainty provided an estimate of the litigation discount implicit in the market price. What was the trade that you actually did? It seemed quite clear to us that the substantial new information was likely to come out relatively soon that would either validate the rating agency's concerns about the litigation in which case the stock price would sell off substantially, or the reverse, in which case the stock would appreciate substantially. Thus there was an above-average probability of a large price move in one direction or the other. We had already seen cases where the option market assigned normal probability distributions to situations that clearly had bimodal outcomes. So the first thing we checked was whether the Altria option still assumed a normal probability distribution, despite the presence of a bimodal event. Sure enough, the Altria option prices still implied a normal distribution, which meant the out-of-the-money options were way too cheap. Since our work suggested a greater likelihood for a bullish outcome, we bought the out-of-the-money calls. The calls appreciated sharply when one of the key cases supporting the rating downgrades was thrown out on appeal shortly after we initiated our investment. We made about 2.5 times our money on the trade, Although we made a large return for a short holding period, in hindsight, we sold far too soon. Any other examples of a trade opportunity that was created by mispriced options related to a corporate event? In 2002, Capital One dropped from $50 to $30 in one day after the company announced it had reached an agreement with regulators to sharply increase its reserves against its subprime-laden loan portfolio and to improve its credit risk assessment procedures. The previous storyline had been that Capital One's long string of strong earnings was driven by its superior quantitative models for assessing subprime credit risk. Now, there was a serious question as to whether the company's impressive financials were more of a product of fraudulent accounting than better risk modeling. 
A full-blown bull-bear battle ensued with some analysts claiming the company was a fraud and other analysts saying that the management team was totally above board and top-notch. The odds that the stock would still be near $30 in two years seemed vanishingly small. Either the company would be vindicated or it would go under. So either the stock is a zero or it's going much higher. Did you have a bias as to which scenario was more likely? We did a ton of research. We did background checks on management. We spoke to people who had gone to college with the CEO because the essential question related to the ethical character of management. Although we were not a large investor, we were tenacious about getting access to the management team. We spoke to the chief risk officer, who not a lot of other people wanted to speak to, but for us, he was gold. We were particularly concerned that the biggest driver in their P&L was this one line item that was amalgamated as securitization income. There was no visibility at all to what went into this figure. We thought that if there was anything wrong with the company, that was where it would be. Over time, the risk officer became quite comfortable talking to us. He spoke to us openly and did not seem at all like someone trying to spin a story. What was the trade that you put on? We thought buying the out-of-the-money calls provided the best way to express the trade because the potential bimodal outcome made a large price move much likelier than usual for the stock. Under these circumstances, the out-of-the-money calls were most mispriced and they had more embedded leverage. We were looking at buying the January 2005 $40 calls, which were trading near $5. Then there was some marginal bearish news and the stock traded down to about $27. The calls we were looking to buy went down from $5 to $3.50. That was a big percentage move, which made the juice in the trade look that much greater, and we bought the calls. How long did you stay in the trade? We held the options for over a year, during which time Capital One stock fully recovered. We ended up making about six times our money on the calls. The Altria and Capital One trades provided examples of situations where the normal probability distribution assumption implicit in option pricing models was inconsistent with market realities. What other inconsistencies do you believe exist in the way options are priced? Options are priced lowest when recent volatility has been very low. In my experience, however, the single best predictor of future increases of volatility is low historical volatility. When volatility gets very low in a market, we consider that a very interesting time to start looking for ways to get long volatility, both because volatility is very cheap in an absolute sense and because the market certainty and complacency reflected by low volatility often implies an above-average probability of increased future volatility. Do you favor long-dated options? Often, the longer the duration of the option, the lower the implied volatility, which makes absolutely no sense. We recently bought far out-of-the-money 10-year call options on the Dow as an inflation hedge. Implied volatility on the index is very low. The Dow companies would be in the best position to pass along higher prices. There is also an interest rate bet implicit in buying long-term options that can be quite interesting when interest rates are very low, as they are now. By being long 10-year call options, we are taking exposure on the risk-free rate implicit in the option pricing models. If interest rates go up, the value of the options can go up dramatically. Are there other option pricing inconsistencies you look for? Option models generally assume that forward prices are predictive of the future movements in the spot price. Academic research and common sense suggest that this relationship is often invalid. Forward option pricing models can break down, 
particularly in interest rate markets with steep term structures and low volatility levels. A simple example of this anomaly would be a rates trade we did in 2010. At the time, the current Brazilian interest rate was around 8%, and the six-month forward rate was over 12%. The six-month forward option prices were distributed around the forward rate of over 12%. In other words, the option prices implicitly assumed the six-month forward rate as the expected level. The implied volatility at the time was around 100 basis points normalized, which meant the market was assigning the odds of nothing happening for the next six months or so, that is, rates staying near 8%, as over a four-standard deviation event. We did not have conviction about the future direction of Brazilian interest rates, much less the actual levels, but we thought the assumption that a spot rate in six months near the current spot rate was a greater than four-standard deviation event an assumption that was embedded in the option price, represented a mispricing. We structured a trade that had a strike price around 10%, which was cheap because it was well out of the money based on the forward interest rate, above 12%. But it was actually well in the money based on the current interest rate, 8%. Rates could have gone up by an amount equal to half the difference between the forward and spot rates, and we still would have made money. Why was the market expecting such a sharp increase in Brazilian interest rates? There were several factors. Commodity exports are a major driver in the Brazilian economy. At the time, raising commodity prices and strong growth in China, a major importer, were resulting in increased domestic inflation. There was a high conviction that the Brazilian central bank was about to initiate an extended series of very substantial rate hikes. While we certainly understood why the market saw rate hikes as likely, we thought the plus 400 basis point increase implied by the forward rate was probably exaggerated. Another contributing factor to expectations for higher rates was that interest rates are a mean reverting asset, and historically, rates have been closer to 12% than 8%. Okay, that was an example of a wide differential between spot and forward rates leading to an anomaly in option prices. What other types of anomalies do you look for? Forward-looking assumptions based on backward-looking statistical correlations are another source of some interesting opportunities. In the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, a clear risk-on, risk-off paradigm emerged in the markets, and particularly the foreign exchange, FX, markets. If it was a risk-on environment, everybody piled into currencies with exposure to emerging markets and commodities, such as the Australian dollar. When it was a risk-off environment, everyone fled currencies like the Australian dollar and piled into safe haven currencies such as the Swiss franc. Before the 2008 financial crisis, the correlation between the Australian dollar and the Swiss franc had ranged between modestly positive to modestly negative for many years. In other words, there was no strong relationship between the two. After the financial crisis, however, the Australian dollar and Swiss franc exhibited extreme inverse correlation because of the risk-on, risk-off psychology that dominated the markets. It got to the point where if the Swiss franc was up sharply, you could be relatively sure that the Australian dollar would be down sharply and vice versa. At the time, we happened to be looking for an efficient way of getting short the euro. Implied volatility on the euro puts was expensive. We cheapened the premium substantially by taking our exposure through a worst-of option, which is an exotic option that is priced based on a correlation input in addition to the standard inputs for a vanilla option. That's a new one for me. What is a worst-of option? 
In a worst of option, you pay a single premium for a basket of options. In the trade we did, there were puts on two crosses in the basket, euro versus Australian dollar, EUR, AUD, and euro versus Swiss franc, EUR, CHF. Worst of option structures are cheaper because the payout is determined by whichever option performs more poorly from the buyer's perspective. As long as one of the options expires out of the money, the option buyer will lose the entire premium. The expected correlation between the different options comprising a worst of basket is therefore a relevant price input in addition to the standard inputs that determine option prices. The worst of option we purchased was very cheap because a strong negative correlation had emerged between EUR-AUD versus EUR-CHF. If one cross went down, the recent correlation suggested that the other cross was likely to go up, which should, in theory, protect the option seller. Our view, though, was that we wanted exposure to the euro crashing, and we felt that if the euro tanked, it would crash against both the Australian dollar and the Swiss franc, swamping the recent risk-on, risk-off inverse correlation effect. If we had taken a bearish bet on the euro using plain vanilla puts in the EUR-AUD or EUR-CHF crosses, we would have had to pay a premium of about 4.5% of notional. But we could do the worst-of basket trade, which we thought the market was mispricing because of a correlation effect that we believe was vulnerable, for less than one-tenth that amount. I guess the market was pricing the premium at a level that assumed that the current correlation was the most likely future correlation without taking into account that there was a potential event, a debt fear-induced sell-off in the euro, that could radically alter the existing correlation. Yes, and if the correlation was negative 0.60, the dealers would sell us the option priced at a correlation assumption of negative 0.50 and high-five each other because they had just ripped our faces off. What happened in this particular trade? The euro did break down against both the Australian dollar and Swiss franc in mid-2009, and we ended up netting over six times our invested capital in the trade. It seems like the common denominator in all your trades is taking advantage of the fact that markets always price securities on the implicit assumption that changes from prevailing levels are equally likely in either direction, where in reality, idiosyncratic fundamental factors can make a move in one direction much more likely. For example, in this particular instance, the event-related potential for a sharp sell-off in the euro made the possibility that the inverse correlation between the Australian dollar and Swiss franc would diminish, or even reverse, much greater than the possibility that the correlation would become more negative. The market always assumes symmetry, and you look for potential asymmetry. Exactly. Our trades range widely in probability of payoff but they all share the characteristic of being priced cheaply relative to the perceived probability and magnitude of a win. We have a trade-on now that I really like. I don't know if you've read Jeremy Grantham of GMO. He is a widely respected value investor who looks across all asset classes and writes commentaries and editorials about what he is seeing. For some time now, he has been arguing that high-quality, consumer-oriented franchises particularly those that have great international brands, are cheap relative to the rest of the S&P based on both dividend yield and enterprise value to cash flow. In my view, he has laid out a fairly compelling argument that places relative valuations in the context of a cycle, wherein the low-quality names tend to outperform early in the cycle, and the high-quality names tend to outperform toward the end of the cycle. There is an index called the XLP, which is an index of U.S. consumer staple companies such as Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, and Johnson & Johnson. 
If Grantham is right, at some point we should see a revaluation of the stocks in this index. I assume that in the current cycle since the 2009 low, the XLP has gone up less than the S&P? It has gone up a lot less. Initially, we considered buying options on the XLP, which were relatively inexpensive. But Ben came up with a much better way to structure the same idea based on the XLP's low beta of 0.5 versus the S&P 500. Beta is the expected change of a security relative to the change in the benchmark, e.g. S&P 500, for a small change in price. A beta of 0.5 indicates that the XLP is expected to change by 0.5% if the S&P 500 changes by 1%. One observation that we found particularly striking was that despite the XLP's low beta, since the start of the index at the end of 1998, the net percentage changes in the XLP and the S&P over the entire period were almost identical. The XLP was up less than the bull markets and down less than the bear markets, but for the period as a whole, the net change was about the same. Seeing that both indexes had approximately the same net change over a long period, a period that included both the internet boom and bust and the credit boom and bust, makes the notion that the XLP has a beta of 0.5 versus the S&P seem counterintuitive if applied to longer periods. In 